I was going to be tempted just to sit and see who um, is still wandering around this afternoon, but that would not have been nice. Let's open in prayer. God, we thank you for your grace and your word. May it impact our lives this morning. God, may the Spirit of God move in our hearts in this room. Now we ask for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn with me to the passage that Pastor Lardy read this morning, a Watergate revival. According to a recent study, faith.com, church attendance and impressions of the church, as well as people leaving the church, they say it's at its lowest point in recent history. Its most drastic is millennials, those in the 22 to 35 age bracket. Um, it says only 2 in 10 Americans believe that church is of any value, that church is important. Um, 59% of millennials in that age group have been raised in a church they have dropped out. And they make this statement. They say, we are not impressed with the hours you brag about spending behind closed doors wrestling with Christianese words on a paper. We're impressed with actions and service. You know, when we add these comments and a lot more as we saw on the, on the film in the Sunday school and have been looking at it, progressive Christianity, questioning the character of God, questioning the reality of, of hell or believing in annihilationism, and on and on it goes. It's pretty clear that the church needs a revival. Church needs for us, we need to be turned back, we need to pursue God. You know, Charles Spurgeon said this regarding a, a revival. He said, the word is, means to live again in a life which has almost expired, to rekindle into a flame the vital spark which was, once, which was nearly extinguished. You know, in order for us to see a revival, to have that flame rekindled, for us to make an impact as we pray and desire in our country, in our state, in our community, where must it begin? Where must a revival begin? Well, it has to begin in the house of God. It has to begin with, with God's children. And yet, when we look at it, the, a revival, what's important? What's needed in a revival? How does it happen? And I chose this passage because of our theme this year, Defend Your Faith. A revival is intimately connected, always connected with the Word of God. It begins when the Word of God is proclaimed. It begins when the Word of God is listened to, and then when we apply it to our lives. It's, it begins not only with the preaching of the Word, but as we cry out to God and we, we examine, God, I just need what I just heard. God, I'm not where I should be. God, I repent, and I want to obey you, and I want to follow you. When we look at history, it's rare to, I don't believe there's ever been a revival apart from preaching of the Word of God. And I look at just a couple examples. John Wycliffe in 1378 was concerned about the church of the day, and he was part of the church. And he started to preach and raise some issues that, that bothered him. He was thinking of a moral clergyman, how to get rid of them. But he realized it was far bigger than, than a moral clergyman. And that problem we see is still around today in, in, in various aspects. But in 1379, he started to zone in and preach aggressively against the dogma, if you please, of the Roman church, and that the Roman church was raising itself up as, as the authority. And he realized that 
the Pope or the church is in the authority. Christ is the authority. And where did he get this idea from? He got it from the Word of God. And he realized that it wasn't church dogma. It wasn't church that was the authority, what they said when. But as he studied the Word of God and realized the Bible is the authority, Christ is the authority and the Bible is the authority. And it started to light a fire in his heart that he passionately preached throughout all of England, preaching the Word of God, because the Word of God was being exposed and had been hidden for too long. And there grew up a group of lay, lay preachers called the Lollards that went throughout all of England. Well, in, during this fiery time in England, there was a group of students from Bohemia that heard this Word of God, and it was so radical that, that the Word of God was being elevated and, and it listened to, and it was the absolute authority, not the church, that he took these seeds idea back, and it caught the heart of a famous, passionate man, professor and um, pastor of the Bethlehem Church, one John Huss. And John Huss embraced these truths and fell in love with the Word of God and His teaching and pro proclaimed it passionately, declaring the Word of God without end. Well, he came into opposition of the church, and eventually they got him, brought him in for counsel. As he sat in this council, and they said, you need to recant of your views. And he said, I will recant if you just show me in the Word of God while I'm wrong. Show me the Word of God. And he went to his fiery death as they burned him at the stake, singing the song, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Well, his ideas were then picked up a little later as one was reading Romans 1.17, as Martin Luther studied Romans 1.17, and he was just moved by all that he heard that was going on around him in years earlier, and he saw Romans 1.17 that only Christ could make one just by, just by faith, and he embraced this truth that it was justification by faith, sola fide, that it was by faith and faith alone. And then he came to understand sola scriptura, that it was the scriptures alone that are our authority. Faith alone, scriptures alone. And as he passionately preached the word of God and saw a great revival in Germany, and those seeds continued to spread throughout, throughout Europe. The Reformation happened because it was a return to the word of God. And as we look at our theme, defend the faith, yeah, we want to defend the faith out there, but we want to also begin with the faith in here. In our hearts. God, I want to know the word. I want to embrace it. I want to, to and, and, and hug it. I want to consume it, make it part of me. And then, God, I want to live it as a millennial spoke against service and actions. I want to live it out there. I want to declare it out there. Let them see it in my life. Let them hear it off of my lips. We step into the passage that, that Pastor already read. Nehemiah chapter 8 is an incredible passage of a revival that's breaking out. This great national revival occurred because the, of the declaration and explanation of the Word of God. Just background, in Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah steps into um, Jerusalem. First, he's back in his um, captivity in Persia. And he hears from brethren what's happening back in Jerusalem. And his heart is burned. His heart is consumed. His, heart's, his heart aches over the suffering and the destruction because he thought it was better than what it was back in Jerusalem. So eventually, King Artaxerxes gives him permission to go back in 445 B.C. He goes back and he raises up a group of people after God had given him a plan. And he had this great dream of building the walls. And they built these walls in 52 days. God did an incredible work. But that was just the beginning, and it wasn't the end. And that's where we step now into Nehemiah chapter 8, because Nehemiah got that there was a tremendous spiritual vacuum amongst the people. 
Okay, the walls were built, but what now? That was just the external. There was a lot more to be done. And so we step into this passage, and I want us to see briefly ingredients that we'll see. What's, what's, what's part of a, of a revival? But before we get to our first one, as we step into verses 1 and 5, again, a little bit of a background. The setting, it says in verse 2 of chapter 8 and verse 73 of chapter 7, it's in the seventh month. And it's in the seventh month that they came, that they came together here in Nehemiah 8. Well, seventh month is a month, a holy month. In fact, of um, Israel's religious days, their holy days, their feast days, they had three in this month. And in fact, it wrapped up their year. The Feast of Trumpets was the blowing of the end of their year for the Jewish um, individual. Then they also celebrated the tabernacle that was in this time period and the Day of Atonement before that. So these three feast days... And it says they came together in verse 1. All of the people gathered as one man. What, what are they gathering for? What, what are they coming together for what? They're coming together to hear the word of God. I mean, what, what, what a congregation. And here are the people that they have realized God has done a great work, but there's more to be done. They're yearning for more. They're desiring more. So they come together because they want God's blessings. And they got it that they cannot get God's blessings apart from the Word of God. And so they come together and they're asking for the law of the Moses to be brought. And so as this congregation is shouting out, bring us the Word, bring us the law, read it to us, help us to understand it. So now, verse 1 and 2 they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law. Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. Ezra is a little bit older. And Ezra actually had showed up about 14 years earlier. So he's been in Jerusalem. He's been teaching the word. But Nehemiah comes, did the great wall building episode. But now he realizes he needs somebody to instruct the people. There's, there's no power struggle here, right? He steps back, Nehemiah does, and Ezra steps forward as they have clamored, as they have cried out for the word to be taught. What a desire. Bring Ezra to read the law to us. People are hungry to get into the word of God. It says in verse 3, and he read from it facing, from morning till midday. Morning is the first hour of the day beginning for them at 6 o'clock. And it goes to noonday, six hours. So for six hours, Ezra is standing on this, as it says in verse 4, this wooden platform that they built. And he's standing up on this platform, and he has another dozen or so people with him. And maybe they're taking turns in reading, but as they're reading, we also see that they're walking amongst the people. They're coming off of the platform, and they're explaining what they, just, what they just read. So they're dividing up. So there is teaching, there is reading, and there is teaching going on. Helping the people to understand. You know, I, I read this passage, and I think of this, this great verse, Acts 10.33. So I, this is Cornelius, who's just yearned to know truth yearn to know, know, know the truth that God had light, lit in his heart and has recorded. So I sent for you at once and, and have been kind enough to come, saying to Peter, now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I mean, that, it's that kind of audience. We're all here. We're, we're receptive. We want to hear what God has laid on your heart. Please share with us. As we look in history, we're going to see a couple of great individuals, great kings that 
ignited a history, a revival, but it was through the preaching of the Word of God. King Ahaz was an awful king, a godless king, but he had an awesome son named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah read the Word of God. In fact, it said of Hezekiah, when he came to the throne, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He removed the high places, broke down the images, and cut down the idols, for he clung to the Lord and departed from, not from following him, but kept his commandments. So God did a great work in, in the life of Hezekiah. But my favorite king, hands down my favorite king, the greatest king. Who's the greatest king that Israel ever had? You're going to say David. You're right. It's Josiah. Kind of a cool name. I'm kind of partial to that name, my grandson. But um, here's King Josiah, eight years old. He comes to the throne. And he um, feels that they should do some temple repairs. So they do some temple repairs in his 18th year. So now he's 26 years old. Shaphan finds the book of the law. And they find it. They didn't have it. Kings were supposed to read it. In fact, I think this might be my next message in February. I love this passage. They were supposed to read the law to the king, but he didn't have it to be read to him. And he brought the law before King Josiah. When King Josiah heard the, the law, he was so moved by it, and he was torn to pieces because he got it that they were far off. And it says that he tore his clothes and cried and wept because they had drifted so far from God's word, from what it said. Um, the story would go on that God gave him a space that he brought about incredible reforms. In fact, it is said in chapter 23, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. According to the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. But what turned Josiah to be such a great king, to be the greatest Israel ever had? It was because he turned to the word of God. In fact, the man's so awesome, not only did he bring reforms like Judah never saw, that wasn't enough for him. He went into another country to bring reforms. He went up into Israel, and he's cleaning up Israel Act. That's a separate country, right? But he's cleaning up their act because he's just hoping to stop judgment by turning the nation to God. He was like a one-man revival wrecking crew. Um, but we step into Nehemiah here, and I want us to look briefly at, I think, six important characteristics. We get these down, and God will do radical work in, in our homes, in our church, and in our community. The first step is going to be connected with the Word of God as we look in verse 5. It says in verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all of the people, and he opened it till all of the people stood. So here are the people Hear the word of God, and out of respect for the word, out of love for the word, and they're receiving the word, they immediately stand. I mean, they stood and they listened as the word of God is read to them. So the, the people cried for the law, bring us the law of Moses. And then the people, as is read, they are embracing the law. They're listening to the law. They're just consuming it. You see, we're blessed. We have... Bibles, we have pew Bibles, we have Bibles at home, a bunch of you are on your phones, your Bibles on your phones. You probably have a whole bunch of different Bibles, New American, ESV, authorized version, uh, different translations. We have all these Bibles, but it wasn't that, that way in that day, right? Um, they didn't have scrolls that they had in their back pocket. They would come together for public reading. They, they, they didn't have individual copies. 
and especially coming out of captivity, there was a dearth of copies of the Word of God. So, so they come with hearts prepared, anxious to read it. Just so we get all this involved in copying it, we're going to this, this summer um, visit a place that, that hands down was my number one place. The first time I went to Israel, I couldn't wait to see um, because in it was the greatest biblical discovery in the world ever made in the caves of Qumran. Um, in fact, I could remember as we're at the, that site and Dr. Brown talked and everybody's back, walk about 100 yards to the bus. I'm still there. I, I don't know that I'm necessarily an emotional guy, maybe sometime, but I just started crying because I got what happened there at Qumran. I understood the, the preciousness of that discovery because what we had was 1,000 A.D., pushed it back 1,200 years closer to the original writings, and it agreed just about completely with all the manuscripts that we had. I mean, what a slam dunk for Christianity, and I could, I could go on with that. But in this, in this um, site, there's a, a sweet building that we'll get to see. It's called the Scriptorium. And the scriptorium was the place where they copied scripture. And it had rows of stone tables and little inkwells that we'll still get to see. But outside, there's a, a, um, a bathtub. Um, it's a ritual um, place of cleansing that they would go in and symbolically cleansing themselves before they would handle sacred scripture. And after they went through all that cleansing and bathing, they're handling scripture, their process of how they checked all of their manuscripts that they're recording. They would read um, all of the words and reread and count the letters and count um, all the symbols and make sure they had the right numbers. I mean, they were so thorough in all their copying. And then if it was wrong, they would just scratch it. They would go back and find their mistake and, and, and correct it because there was a high respect for the Word of God. They had it, and they, were, they wanted to pass it on to the next generations. And it's that view that I see here as we step into the audience, and, and they're listening to the Word of God being read, that they're, they're, they're in love with, with the God of the book, but they, they love the words that they're hearing. So there's a reception. We have to receive the Word. I, I would encourage you in your personal study, you might say, well, of course I receive the Word. Well, how do you receive the Word? Tell me how you spent time in the Word this past week. Tell me how you spent time in, in, in applying the Word of God to your life this past week. How did you get into the Word of God? How much time did you spend? You see, we have it, but we need to get into it. We need to have a high view of Scripture. And we have a high view of Scripture because we have a high view of the God of Scripture. You see, we, we're not in love with the book. We're in love with the God of the book. And we see this with the people in verse 6. They had a great reverence for God. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all of the people answered, Amen, Amen. I mean, Ezra stands up and he blesses God. And he uses a phrase, the great God that's used in Jeremiah 32, 18, Deuteronomy 10, 17, and, and one other reference, but is used several, three or four times in the Scriptures and exalting who God is. So here God, Ezra stands up on this high platform and says, Blessed be the Lord, the great God. And all the people, it's not just enough to say, Oh, amen. I mean, they're, re- amen, amen. Really what they're saying is, let it be, so be it. We agree, absolutely. They realize God's greatness. And they had the word of God and they were so thrilled with it that they had God's scripture. They're adoring the God of the scripture. And they shout out, blessed be the Lord. 
But that's not just through their words. They, they lift up their hands. We're not trying to be right, charismatic here, but I mean, they, they lift their hands and their hands to say, God, God, I'm empty. God, I, I praise you. God, fill us. God, you're awesome. God, just, just want you to receive their complete praise. And like, it's almost like you're just reaching out. God, I just want to get a little closer to you. And they're just reaching and stretching and adoring God. They also, it says, bow their faces down to worship. This word, um, bow down, is used 15 times in the Old Testament. And other 15 times, I think 11 or 12 times is worship to God. And three times is to man. Not worship, okay? It's just respect is really the view. And it's really what we would think of in the Middle East world where we see those pictures of Muslims are. Well, this is what they did. They're just putting their face right down to the ground between their knees in complete submission to God, complete adoration to God. I mean, the people are hearing God's word. It's, it's water on a dry, dry tongue, dry soul that many of them probably have never heard. And they're just rejoicing in who God is and they're crying out to him. So, so what brings a re- revival? Get into the word of God and grow a big view of God. You have a small God, you're going to have small worship and you're going to have a small Christian life. We have a big God, a big view of God and understand who he is and, and falling in love with him completely, then we're going to have a, a Christian life that will answer the millennial service in action. But we move on in this passage, and we see it wasn't just enough to, to read the Word. Um, there was a desire for them to understand what was being given to them. And there's a word that's used in verses 7 and 8, the word understand. In fact, it's used five times in this passage, and one time it's translated in ESV, taught. But there was a desire for them to understand, 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 understand. They want them to get into the Word. They want them to... The word means to determine, to separate, to make clear. Reading of the word, that's the beginning. But that's not the end. I now need to understand what I read. And that's that's, that's our desire. We want to defend the faith. We want to know what our faith, what what it says. But we want also to be able to determine. We want to be clear. We want to first apply it to ourselves. Then, God, we want to apply it to, to, to others around us. And that's what's happening with, with this incredible congregation. They're standing on this day in 444 B.C. And they built these walls and they have Ezra brought. And they, they're hearing scripture. They have a desire to hear. They're, they're praising a God that's so awesome. And now they start to get the meaning. It's being made clear to them. I, I guess during the six hours, maybe they had pause, and they would go over here and get a group of people. Now, do you see what's... And they would talk it through, exegete it together, and then get up and read more. Maybe that's what happened. But there's understanding during the six hours reading for them to get it. What next? What do you think is the next response? Don't look in Scripture. You have heard the word. You have a higher view of Scripture. You're in love with God. You're praising Him. You're understanding the Scripture. Probably just like, all right, guys, go home. It's time for lunch, right? Is that what what happens? These people start to weep. They measure their lives with the Word of God. They, they get the Word and, they, and they, they put their lives accordingly. And there is a gr- tremendous remorse for sin. 
They're, they're not where they should be. The word of God is making impact. And the problem in, in, in our Christianity is we take it so for granted. We could come to church and we could be fast asleep. We could just be looking all around or we could be distracted or we could be thinking about, man, I, you know, I like to see Andy Reid win. You know, we could think about the game. Or, but, but may we get into the word of God. May we be so moved by it that our hearts are broken that we cry out, God, it's not right in here. God, God I need to make changes in my life. God, I need to, to, to be repentant. Look in verse 9b. And this is a Nehemiah, who was the governor, who taught the people. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Um, do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They're, they're crying. Why are they crying? They have a bad morning? <laughs> what are they crying for? Because life does not square with the word. Life and word are not on the same plane. Um, maybe they're hearing, wow, this is what the word of God said all along. Our forefathers blew it. We were warned repeatedly about idolatry. We were warned that we would be sent into captivity. We didn't get it. They could have avoided all of this pain. And they're crying, they're mourning. Much like King Josiah does when he hears the word, how far off that God's judgment is knocking on his doorstep and he was trying to stop it because it didn't match with how they were living. When was the last time, when was the last time that you and your devotions, you and your quiet time, as you opened the word of God and it was just you and God, that you actually wept over something. When was that? I, may I say, when was the last time for me? When was the last time for us that we got into the Word and we were so moved because of what the Word of God said that, that we cried and then we went to a song, maybe like the song we heard this morning, I need you every hour, where we just cried out to God, God, I need you. God, I, I want to be done with sin. I want to be done with this lethargy. God, I want to be on fire for you continually. These people had that revival moment that they cried out to God, God, my life doesn't match your word. Change it. Well, what would you think is next then? What would happen next if you have this people that they're crying out, there's repenting, there's remorse? What's next? Rejoicing in fellowship with God. I love verses 9, verses 10 and 12. Uh, Nehemiah says, you know, he says, stop, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't weep. For all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. Then he said, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And send pork. I mean, he's, what is he saying? He says, stop crying. Stop, stop, stop crying. In fact, go celebrate. Eat. You know, Pastor Walker likes to associate happiness and food, but don't tell him I said that. Um, but he said, go eat. Be, be happy. Go out there and enjoy yourself. Eat of the choice. What is he saying? What in the world? Do, what is he saying? Stop weeping. I, I think if I may, may humbly say, I think it's twofold. Number one, this day is holy to the Lord. He says that, that, that phrase. They're in a holy, I think it's the first aspect is, is the time. Um, 8, 2, and 7, 73 says it's the holy feast. They have the feast of trumpets, feast of the day of atonement, and the feast of um, tabernacles. 
and they wrap up their holy day. So they're in a, in a period of holy celebration. In light of this holy day, you repented, that's good. But I, I think really it goes deeper than that. And, and I think this is really what he's saying is, not only is it a time period, that's good, you repented. God, God heard you. God, 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 God heard. God forgives. We have a forgiving God. Stop beating yourself up. Celebrate now. Go and enjoy all that he's done. Remember the holy days. Remember this, this time, this day of atonement that one's going to take it, that God takes away our sin. Remember this tabernacle. And they'll get into that shortly. Remember this sweet period of, of God's blessings to you, of God's fellowship. That's why I think he's telling them to stop. Yes, we're in the holy period, but God heard. God answers. God forgives. Now move on and rejoice in who God is. Rejoice in all that God has done. And see, that's revival, right? That as I hear the word, as I get to know God as a big God, as I cry out to him and confess my sin, and, and, and then I rejoice. God, thank you. And we have, we have that burden that's lifted. We have that contrite that broken heart that's been been healed and put together and God is just now go out and rejoice in who I am because really there's a time to get off of your knees stop crying that's good you did that now go out and live out your faith have a bounce in yourself God's awesome now go share that with other people see that's revival but is that all of revival I think there's one last part just to, to hit very quickly um, verses 13 to 18 the dads or the leaders, it says in verse 13, come back for another day. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with all the priests and Levites came together to Ezra to describe in order to study the words of the law. I mean, it's not enough. They just want more. So they send their families back home. Okay, we can't all live here and stay here. So you guys go back home. But the leaders, you're stepping up to the plate. We want to be able to, we want to, be able to lead our families right I'm going to get my heart right. So read the law to me more. Tell me more what I have to do. Instruct me more. Give me more of the word of the faith. Let me get more into it. What, what else do I have to do to lead my family? And they find in the next verses that there is this holy day coming up that hadn't been kept since Joshua the son of Nun. So that's like a boatload of years. That's thousands of years, maybe 800 years earlier. It's been a long time since they kept this, this feast. And what, what it is, is it's to commemorate the tabernacles. Um, the word means booth or hut. When they lived in huts as they were traveling for 40 years in the wilderness, that God provided for them, that God cared for them, that God met their needs. So as they would live in this little hut, they would be remembering it. Now, this is my kind of feast day. I love hiking and living in a tent, at least for a day or two. Um, but here they are. I mean, they're going to they're, they're they're, get the whole family. Were they obedient? They were. Can, you could just see them now in the verses that follow. Here are the dads and the kids and, and, and mom, the wife. They're picking up sticks and they're making this little hut and they're making this lean-to so they could sit and hang out for a while, rejoicing over history past. You see... Revival, the last point is they were obedient. There will not be a revival if we're not obedient. You put it all together and you have a state, a country, a state, and a community that will be changed. Because as we get before God and we hear the word of God, we have a high view of Scripture, higher than 
than even eating. If there's a choice between eating and studying the Scripture, take your meal and study. No, um, get into the Word of God. You know, as we then get into the Word of God and as we get to see God and His awesomeness. Let me give it, may I sum it up in three points if I can, can close it with, with three ideas, my whole, my whole sermon. Um, number one, get into the Word of God and grow a big view of God. Get into the Word of God and grow a big view of God. What is your, what is your Bible reading plan? What is your Bible study method? What are you, where are you right now? What are you chomping up in your daily time with you and God? You ought to be in some place. Right now, I'm in the Psalms, and I'm highlighting on my computer, all in green, all of the attributes of God. I want to know God bigger. I want to, I want to then lead that in my prayer time as I'm thinking of who God is, a steadfast love, the fortress, all that, that I'm seeing of God, that I would grow a bigger view of God. Or get into the Gospels and grow a sweet view of Jesus. See who he is and let that just challenge and sweeten your life. Or get into the epistles and be reminded of your position. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, see who you are in Christ and what he's done. But number one is just get into the Word of God. Number two, have remorse for your sin. As we get into the Scriptures, God, show me where I'm failing. God, forgive me that, that my heart is cold. Forgive me that my heart is distant from you. God, wake me up. Give me that burning heart as we think of the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I want that burning heart. Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us? God, I want your, my heart to burn as I, I talk with you. Thirdly, obey and apply, the, apply God's word. You see, we want to sow spiritual seed in the spiritual field. We want, to, we want to sow seed in the spiritual field. We want to bring glory to God. Come thou fount of every blessing. God, I don't want my heart to be prone to wander. I want to be brought back to you. I want to pursue you and know you in every day of our lives. God, we love you. We thank you for your amazing grace to us. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the word that's been preserved over the years. God, we want this word to be burning within our hearts. We want the word of God to guide us. God, may we never step on soil, this fleshly soil, carnal soil, self-centered soil. But God, may we pursue you. May we hunger for you. May we, may we desire things that please you. God, may we get into the word this year. And may the word get into us and may we be obedient. And may the world see our love for you by our service and actions. I pray in Christ's name, amen.